Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Michael Winterbottom, a multi-award winning film director behind 24-hour party people, Greed, Wonderland, and a film that I made with him called Emperor's New Clothes, which is fascinating, and if you ain't watched it yet, you should watch it now. His latest film, 11 Days in May, focuses on the families of the children killed in the Gaza conflict last May. Listen to shout-outs. And these are your listener shout-outs. Sue Lang said, I discovered you several months ago. I've been around a lot longer than that, Sue. You're probably the best all-round person I've ever come across. Well, Sue, I've got to say, you know, if you want to know a man, talk to his wife. That's saying a lot because I've lived 71 years in which I've come across a lot of persons. Sue, don't be saucy. I subscribe to Luminary and never miss one of your offerings. Thank you so much, Russell, for sharing your beautiful soul with us. Sue in Iowa, USA. Sue, thanks for that. That's lovely. Jonathan Dunsmere. This is my first time writing in. My name is Jonathan. I'm 19. I'm from New Brunswick, Canada. I've been listening to Under the Skin since May 2021. Thank you, Russell and crew. Thanks, Jonathan, for being with us. I love you, mate. And then Arnold Beeks, who says, Thank you, Under the Skin, for being such a clear voice in a degrading world. Sometimes it does feel degrading, doesn't it, Arnold? Please continue to expose the manipulations and craziness that seem to drive our planet. We, the people, need to drive change from the bottom up. Our leaders won't do it. Well, Arnold, you hit the nail on the head, darling, right there. Listen, if there's still a few tickets left to see me in Blackpool. If you want to come for nothing, put uh, Blackpool 33 in the subject heading and we'll send you a pair of tickets. You know, maybe you're, you can't afford it or something. Oh, St. Helens, Stoke and London's. Oh, it's all sold out. It's sold out. But you might be able to get a ticket to Blackpool. I don't know. If I were you, that's what I'd focus on. Also, sign up to my mailing list. There are some exciting things we're doing. Me and Wim Hof are doing a one-day event on the 10th of July. There's a link in the description where you can register your interest. It will take place in the UK. There's only a few tickets. There's not going to be very many. We'll give away a few. Mostly we got charged for them because the event all goes to my charitable foundation or non-profit. I don't know what the right word is. It's called the Stay Free Foundation where we make donations to you know drug addicts and that. People, not drug addicts, that are using drugs, to be clear. Like So sign up to my mailing list to learn about that Wim Hof event. It's russellbrand.com. Go there now. All also, follow my Awakening channel where I talk about meditation and well-being, as well as the usual stuff, you know, my YouTube channel where I talk about the news and all that. As you're on Lumini already, why not listen to Above the Noise where there's a guided meditation every week. The latest one is on grounding yourself. Now it's time for the film director, Michael Winterbottom, a friend of mine, a man who I worked with once, and I, I start by apologising to him for being unpunctual during the time we worked together. He's a brilliant man, a brilliant filmmaker. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thank you, Michael, for joining me on Under the Skin. Thank you for having me. Now, I know you've worked with many talented people over the course of your illustrious career, but does any one person in particular stand out for their punctuality, for their reliability, <laughs> um, for their easy affability? Uh, it, well, it is always a pleasure to work with you, Russell. I'm apologising now for that. I was, I don't know what was, well, I suppose what was going on when we made that documentary together, Emperor's New Clothes, where we talked about the financial corruption at the heart of British politics in, in that particular case, the easy tax arrangements that exist for big corporations. At that point, I was making um, true The Trues, a YouTube series that I, I used to do before my current incarnation. And I just remember, I remember you once looking at me sort of like, 
why are you so late? What's what is wrong with you? Like, and he went actually angry. He looked sort of genuinely mystified, and I, I really apologise for that for being unreliable. No need to apologise. No need to apologise. I think on that particular case, it was because we had a group of shop workers down that travelled down from various parts of the country. So I was feeling a little bit stressed on their on their behalf because they, mm. they they were working long hours in their shops and then they'd come down to talk to us. Ironically, their participation in our documentary is probably more taxing than their <laughs> zero-hour contracts at punitive shops. Definitely worse paid. Because <laughs> it was nothing at all. It was not only zero-hour contracts, it was zero-money contracts. Uh, Michael, we, we reconnected because of your... Um, Brilliant new film, 11 Days. Oh, God, I don't know how to describe it, really. Uh, like, it's 11 Days in May is the name of it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I went and saw it the other day. I wasn't really, I mean, I wasn't really ready for it. I went in there with popcorn and everything. And then, of course, can you tell us a little bit about the film? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that I kind of feel a bit of a fraud talking about it. It should really be Mohammed Sawaf talking about it more than me, but... The film is just a very simple record of um, the families of children who were killed during the bombing of Gaza last year. So it's roughly now the, it's pretty much exactly a year anniversary. So it's in the cinema at the moment to, to mark that anniversary. And it's really, you know, it's really just uh, them talking about their children, what they loved about them, the children's dreams, ambitions, hopes, uh, and what they miss about them. It's sort of just a way of them remembering their children. And the idea of the film is just a way of, of remembering the ch children in a more public place. So that, you know, ideally, perhaps with the idea that, you know, if you, if you don't forget about wars that happen, if you, if you sort of think about them, you remember them, that it might make people kind of think twice before, for, before doing the same thing again. What I found most moving about the film was, and it seems a ridiculous thing to say in a way, was the way that the film, co-directed by yourself and Mohammed Sawaf, human, like we become used to the cliche, there's been a bombing, 11 children were killed. And it's sort of like we've become inured to the timbre and cadence of news reporting and it doesn't viscerally affect you. When, additionally, in uh, Palestine or uh, Gaza, there's the... Um, cultural distinctions i don't necessarily mean racially but even actually when you see that uh, the the this is a curious thing to say and i'm going to try and handle it sort of sensitively um when you see people that are living in poverty and living amidst rubble on some un almost unconscious level it creates a separation between the way that inverted commas they live and the way that we live and instead of making one feel more empathy and sympathy it kind of creates an acceptance of the normalness the normalness of that level of devastation by showing in as you said when we spoke at the time a kind of photo album of the children the 60 children that died in those 11 days as the result of that bombing and like hearing their siblings say, oh, this, they like watering the plants. His favourite footballer was Sergio Ramos. When you hear stuff like that, it makes you, oh, shit, these are just kids, man. Oh, no. Oh, no. Like it, it was, in the end, I felt like, like it was a sort of a deluge of empathy. And I felt a kind of a bit bludgeoned. I didn't really know, in a sense, where to take it other than like, you know, like being guided to the point where I feel. Oh man, you just, as you say, what's the point? Can't we evolve beyond armed conflict? Can't we just get beyond this? Now, obviously, because you're talking about Palestine, you know, I've got friends that are Israeli and pro Israeli state and are extremely 
uh, sensitive to discussing this subject. Now, how do you handle the subject of this film with regard to that audience in particular? Is that something that, you, that you've considered? I mean, I noticed that it was that, isn't it? Like the anniversary of the establishment of the state of Israel, which has like a Hebrew name. And I don't, I'm afraid I don't remember it right now. You know, and I noticed that the film's being released around that. Is that deliberate? And it kind of, you know, what do you feel about the, the additional sensitivity that's required because of the unique identity of uh, Israeli people and their uniquely tragic history? Well, the timing of the film being released is to do with it being the anniversary of the bombing last year. So that, that's why like, we wanted to get it out now. Uh, so it's the one year anniversary of, of, of the bombing of Gaza. I mean, look, I think the film, you know, the film is really about families talking about their children, families talking about, about their grief for their children and their love for their children. So, you know, in a way it could have been children who, who died through, you know, accident or through illness. You know, in a way it would be the same grief, the same love. You know, and, and in relation to war, I mean, it could, you know, I think that you could have the, do a very similar film about families in Ukraine right now. It, it, it deliberate, the film deliberately avoids, you know, to, trying to talk about what, you know, the reasons, you know, the, the sort of to, to look at the political context or, or the military context. It doesn't try and say what's the right side or the wrong side or what the solution is at all to, to the situation. It was, you know, deliberately just a very, very small film, very simple film, like you say, a photo album, just as a sort of feeling like actually, you know, maybe that is a way of just, you know, as, as you said, that sort of thinking about p people as individuals, putting yourself in their shoes, putting yourself in the shoes of the families uh, who've lost their children. And maybe, you know, if you imagine it like that, you can somehow feel that more, more clearly or more simply, that would make the whole kind of experience of war se seem seem more terrible in a way. And obviously everyone knows it's terrible. Everyone knows, you know, it's awful. And everyone knows that people die and everyone knows that children die. But but I think, you know, somehow if you make films, you try and find a way in a film to to sort of think about that in a, in a, in a slightly different way, just like, you know, media reporting, you should report it and so on. So I think it's an effort just to do something extremely simple in the hope that that just makes people imagine themselves in that place, really, and imagine that, there's that situation. And one of the things with Gaza, you know, is, is that obviously Gaza has been bombed before, you know, and for people living in Gaza, I think, you know, an additional set of issues and problems, if you're a parent in Gaza, is that it's very hard to see how, you know, to imagine, it, it must be very hard to imagine it's happened before, it's happened again, maybe it's going to happen again. And so that sense of helplessness in a way in the situation, I think sort of makes their situation seem sort of even more complicated emotionally than perhaps in other places. So you feel like by in this film in particular, focusing on the simplicity of the universal and obvious tragedy of losing a child, that you can bypass the political complexity that typically frames this almost uniquely divisive issue. As a storyteller then, Michael, how did you and Mohammed come up with, and this won't make sense to people unless they've seen the film, and of course I recommend that they do go and see the film and we'll put a link in the description to give you the information you need to access the film, go and see it in a cinema and otherwise I'm sure. Uh, how did you come up with the ideas of like the, the, the moments of portraiture 
where like the remaining and grieving family members would stand for like, you know, in a shot we could see four or five of them together and sometimes there'd be single shots of them sort of standing sort of, you know, live action shots of where sometimes people were unable to withhold their tears just being observed in that moment. How did you come up with that? Is that something you discussed in in pre-production with Mohammed, who was obviously in Gaza doing the shooting? And also how did you come up with the idea of putting together the sometimes painfully humble possessions of the deceased kids you know like seeing the parents or sibling going into a cupboard and put together their clothes and assemble their like little toys and things like that how what was the discussion and pre-production that went into them devices because i know that that film looks very simple as we as we've again and again discussed but coming up with devices forgive the word such as that must require some consideration how did yeah. you yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the process was, you know, the starting point of the process was, first of all, talking, we talked to UNICEF, so, and Oxfam, but the people in Gaza working for UNICEF and Oxfam, and just, you know, saying the basic idea of the film, and, and did they think that was a good idea? They put us in touch with Mohammed Sawaf and his team, and a few other teams, and we talked to them about the basic idea. And, and from the beginning, it was that, you know, it was, was just to be focused on the children. It was, it was going to be a sort of photo album, it was going to be very, you know, a very simple film. They, we then said to Mohammed, they should talk to the families, and and really ask the families for the, mem- you know, it was it was like to keep, keep the, from, you know, the conversation with Mohammed at the beginning was like, let's try and get the families to talk, not about the political situation, not about war, not about the, any kind of anger or hate, but co- focus on on their memories of their children, the children's hopes and dreams, and ambitions, the. Um, the, the things they particularly, uh, uh, the t- things the children particularly liked, the things they remember about children, things that remind them of their children. So the sort of things that are kind of, you know, would apply to any family anywhere with their children. But also to ask, do they have any photographs of their children? And do they have any, um, do they have any objects that remind them? You know, have they kept any any uh, objects of their children that remind them that are kind of particularly kind of close to them, have a special memory for them of their children? So. So Mohammed and his team went out and, and talked to all the families, asking them, first of all, you know, was it a good idea to make the film? Did they want to be in the film? But then asking for the photographs, ask, asking for these um, of these particular objects that, that remind them of the children or that the children were close to. So when they gave us the research, they gave they gave us the, 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 the archive of the of the pictures, which are lots of pictures of the children from their phones or, or whatever. And then they they sort of taken the researchers are taking pictures of the families as they laid out the objects that reminded, reminded them of their child, their clothes or their school books or their school bags or their jewelry, whatever. And it just seemed that research was very powerful. You know, it, was very, it was very simple, but it was very powerful. It was very emotional reading. The, the, they sort of gave a transcript of what the, the, the sort of the special memory they had of their child or the thing their child liked, the thing, you know, and, and so the research was very simple, but very moving. And so, Really, you know what we, you know, we said to Mohammed, that's how we wanted the film to be, to be in a way just like a sort of, a, you know, a sort of a, a kind of moving, a, a you know, a sort of a, a filmed version of that research, and that you know, we should shoot it very static, like photographs. Uh, they should do do you know, sort of three sizes: the wide, the mid, and the close. They should ask, really, ask the families to think about what they wanted to say about the child. So it's not an interview like this where I'm rambling on and, and you're rambling on, but it was more like have a th- you know prepare in a sense what you want to say about your brother or your sister, your daughter or whatever. And and so they you know and, and, and then film it quite formally so that we sort of you know and so we you know and 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 really use 
in a sense, the first, what we see of the children, say we see this, the, a sister or a cousin or whatever, it's the sort of way, the way they stand in for the children who've been killed as well. It, might, it makes you think about the children who've, who've been killed because obviously we only have, you know, the still photographs not from the phones or whatever for, for the children that actually died. And so it was a sort of what the, the, the children in the family are still there well, and the parents as well. But especially the children are sort of a way of making you think, well, it could have been this person. You know, and a lot of, that's what a lot of the children are saying. It could have been me, but I happened to go out early or they went out and I stayed in. And so really, it was really from, you know, from, you know, this was the basic idea from the beginning, but it was really from the research material and what the, what Mohammed's team, you know, the stories they got from the families, it just felt like, okay, let's just do, let's just film that. Let's just film that in a simple, clear uh, uh, way as possible. Why did you want to make this film? Why did you want to make this film? Obviously, you went to, you know, UNICEF and Oxfam and, you know, and ultimately Mohammed. What was your why? Why? It's a good question. And there's always lots of reasons, I think, connect to why you want to make a film. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I've made films in the past, you know, like I did a film in Sarajevo, which is the, the aftermath of, of, the, of the war about the, the war, war in Bosnia. I, I worked, did a film with refugees from Afghanistan traveling to Britain. And then a few, quite a few years ago, I mean, I guess a long time ago now, but sort of from around 2015, sort of a few years, that spent quite a lot of time talking to Syrian refugees about, um, about their experiences leaving Syria and coming to, to Greece and Europe. And I guess, uh, I, I, and we never made a film about that, but I, I guess what I was talking to them and watching the films made about them was sort of impressed. I mean, we, I, we met lots of, when we were researching that, because it was about the media coverage of the war in Syria. So it's lots of groups that were working uh, in Syria on that. And you know, sort of like impressed by, you know, by, the fact that, you know, in a way the narrative was created by who is filmed, you know, that so all the media coverage of the war in Syria is very much from the opposition side. It became very difficult for the media after a while to work in those opposition areas because of, of uh, because of the sort of dangers to their life. But nevertheless, the narrative was framed by the fact that the, 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 the reports were coming from that area. We talked to various organisations that provided cameras to people in the opposition areas to create sort of videos that, that would give you their perspective. And it just seemed to me that, you know, it, 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 that maybe in the case of Gaza, we don't see enough, we don't see enough of individual people and their stories. We don't see enough of, of, of the sort of normal life in Gaza to really connect. So when we hear about the bombing of Gaza, we don't perhaps really feel about it, you know, uh, that strongly. And it just felt like, okay, well, I'm around and free at the, at the time. You know, when we met with Mohammed, like this, there is the people there who could, could can actually do the do the work, and it would be something useful uh, from my point of view, interesting and satisfying. But hopefully, can kind of something useful that, that to, to actually just see people, see the way they live. One one thing about the, the film for me, watching the rushes and editing it over here in England, is that yeah, you know, I didn't really have that great a clearer picture of what life is like in Gaza. So just seeing all the different houses, the different families, just that that was part. Of the interest really that you know you have a kind of cross section of Gaza society in a way yeah. because it's just the people who, whose children unfortunately were killed. So it just felt to me like it would be a, a you know a useful way of of you know imagining what the situation there is like. Really, I was pretty interested to see that there were clear 
cultural strata as well. Like there's one family that's sort of know, about midway in that seemed like, oh, they're pretty well off, this family. Like the idea that it's not a sort of a blanket, you know, so there must be an economy within there and there's a class system of some description. And there was obviously that family that were basically living in bloody rubble. So there was like... So, you know, sort of, yeah, social diversity within Gaza, but then why wouldn't there be? And, and as you say, there's a kind of a homogenizing effect by that takes place in ordinary media reportage, which I think contributes to our acceptance of war as a phenomena, this war in particular, as just a, this is what it is. Don't question it. It's just a thing that's happening. It kind of, yes, normalizes um, epic suffering. There were a lot of moments that impacted me. The woman talking about, um, you know, like uh, hearing the boys playing outside in the street, you know, and like that, you know, like she used to hear her own son playing the street. And of course she won't anymore. And like that she felt annoyed by that. And I like that. that that's because that again, that could have been in uh, Alan Bennett talking Ed, someone talking about, you know, like the grief that could be happening in, like, you know, in Bradford or indeed Blackburn. So like it was, yeah, that was a really interesting thing. What then, now, as you've touched on it, I want to get into a few things. One is, all right, I'll do it in order. When you're watching this sort of stuff and doing it, you're a father, you're a human being. Do you cry or anything when you're like watching this stuff back? Look, it's very, I think, you know, watching it was, you know, it's listening to the families talk about about their children, you know, it's very moving. It's very, um, one thing I, I like, what, you know, to be honest, to some extent, what we asked was for them to try and focus on the positive kind of memories they have of their, of their children or their sisters, their brothers, whatever. But nevertheless, you know, when when you watch it, it it's impressive that they can talk as calmly yeah. as they did about what happened. You know, and, and they talk, you know, they talk, you know, they talk with, with you know, obviously with love for, for, the, for the child who's been killed. But also they talk about it, you know, they they, they talk about it in a very um, like human way. It's, it's not, you know, the film, the film deals with war and it deals with violence, it deals with death, but it's actually a film where it's all about love in the film. The film really mm. just focuses on that aspect of love, their, their love for the children. So it is, you know, as someone watching it, editing it, I was watch, watching it for months, you know, so yeah, it is very moving. Obviously when you're working on something, work in a way gives you a certain distance, you know, so because Sorry. just like if you're, if you're working in a hospital or whatever, you have to get used to people being ill when you're working, I'm, you know, in, in the comfort of the cutting rooms, edit suite, a long way from it, but it, nevertheless, it's very moving. I think, you know, in a way it'd be more, I think the hardest thing about making the film would have been for Mohammed and his team, probably for his researchers, really, the first conversation, the first conversation with the family about, you know, do you want to talk about your child? Do you want to be involved in the film? What are your memories of the children? I'm sure that is a, those are a difficult set of questions to ask. I can imagine from my point of view, you know, if I had access to go there and was doing that myself, that would have been a very hard thing to do, you know, because, you know, it's but 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 I think you know. So so in a way, I think their their role on the film was much more difficult. Yeah, you know, but I think one one thing to say about about, about about the making film in general is that a lot of you know a lot of the photographs, we, all the all the photographs we use, the children were given to us by the families. They wanted them to be in the film, and the families had also quite often made videos themselves already, or videos being made. So the pre-existing kind of video records of of the children in different form, forms and formats. So in a sense, you know, that is perhaps more for, for families in Gaza, more of their kind of cultural react, response to death is a different cultural response to ours, you know, whereas perhaps in Britain, we'd be very private about it and asking a family, can you share your photographs? Do you want to share your memories? Might seem 
like very intrusive and very tricky. You know, perhaps less that's less, perhaps in the culture of Gaza, it's more normal to share your memories with your children. Probably, I mean, presumably, because death is a more normal part of life and fatality through military action is sadly part of their reality. But this idea that martyrdom has been culturally assimilated again points to the editorial challenge of of presenting a version of the story that focuses on the universal um, grief of losing a child because it is uh, those deaths are necessarily political deaths and I wonder how you know, when one of the things that the person I was watching it with, I watched it with someone I worked with, Alicia, and she was like, how come the funerals are like that? You know, how come the funerals, like they're running with them and everything? I said, I don't know. But <laughs> like, I feel like it might be because death has a certain energy to it over there and is sort of part of their shared identity and it has to be sort of ritualized. And so there's a point... Michael, and I'm certainly not accusing you of this, where it would be disingenuous not to include the sort of the idea of martyrdom, the idea of religion, and the and both from a personal perspective and a narrative perspective, where do you go with like ideas like sort of revenge, anger, etc.? How did how did you navigate that? You've been clear about the choices that you made and the reasons you made them, and obviously it's successful as a piece of filmmaking. But like, but but say for for example, focusing as you did just for a moment on the idea that they're willing to be to share grief in a different way. Like, how did you? How do you manage that? And what do you feel about that? And the way that the funerals are over there, and the idea of martyrdom and stuff. Well, in terms of in terms of like things like you know like revenge and anger. I mean, I I don't. To be honest, if I was being absolutely honest, I don't know to what extent they feel. I mean, look, anyone would feel anger. You know, like obviously, if your if your child's killed by anyone, you're going to feel anger. If it's killed by a plane dropping a bomb on it, you're going to feel a huge amount of anger. Sure, they all feel anger and. You know, possibly they want revenge. I, I don't know. We didn't. I, you know, in a sense, the question, I, the questions we asked, my having to ask them, were not around those those issues about what should happen, what do you want to happen. Yeah. To, to uh, and you know, so is that you know, is that that was an editorial decision, but um, but I, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think that sort of, I, it, it wasn't something. You know, in a sense, it was a sort of like let's. It's not so much we're saying anger doesn't exist. I, I don't know, but nevertheless, but like in, in the in the filming. So what, you know, when we watched watched the rushes back, you know, it's like they when people did talk about it. You know, obviously people were very upset, but in general, when they talked about how the child died, which wasn't really a question that sort of we sort of originally put in the sort of questions. It wasn't really trying to find you know and exactly the person sort of how they how they died. But, but most of them did talk about that. And when they talked about that, they talked about it incredibly matter-of-factly. You know, it, was, it was like just they just described the events that happened that led up to death. You know, which is I think is, is incredibly moving. I think for me that's more moving, more powerful than if someone's yeah. like shouting, you know, sort of full of, of the anger that I'm sure they must feel. Obviously, they must have felt those those feelings. But I didn't want that the film to be about anger. I didn't want it to be about violence. And I think you know, one of the issues you, you talked about before, but you talk about particularly about in relation to Gaza. Is that everyone comes with such a strong idea of this side's right, this side's wrong, whichever side of that divide you're on. And uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I like I had a response from someone who really liked the, this film, 
uh, on days in May. But then the next question was, oh, I see you're making a film about Israel next. I hope you're not going to go to Israel because we should be boycotting Israel. It's just like, it's just like, it's like, and it's so like, it, I think people, you know, we, we, I really want to try and avoid that and just concentrate on the personal feelings of the family for their child. Yeah, I think it was a good decision. I was interested personally in how much um, like their um, religious faith and religious response, which again, understandable to grief was sort of like, you know, part of it. And I suppose what I'm thinking, you said a minute ago, like that the way that the media focuses its lens and the way that the stories are told about these things in a sense governs the way that you feel. I wonder what, if you have an idea of what guides you as a filmmaker. I know you've made an incredible array of films and you're a very prolific artist. Like, and, and I know usually that what people say to this kind of thing is stories and you like stories. But like, if you're a person that makes films about wars and then you know 24-hour party people and documentaries, what do you have a sense of like what it is that moves you? And also, I w also wonder about whether you enjoy this idea of distance Michael like you know like and what that kind of means to you of distance yeah because you said it gives you like you've got distance as a filmmaker and I thought I wonder what that means about him emotionally that he's distant really he's I distant and the, aloof whether I enjoy the idea of making a film in England sitting in England whilst the film's being made in Gaza that sense of distance um, well, yeah that's preferable I can imagine in some ways um, it, it varies, you know, it is, it, I think it varies and it's, you know, different films have different starting points, you know, so, you know, as I say, in this case, it, it was, this was kind of probably quite arbitrary uh, in a way that, that it just felt I was watching, you know, watching the coverage of it in the news, which is very powerful and feeling like be good to sort of try and find some way of, of remember, you know, remember, because it feels like the news cycle as it moves on, if you quickly forget about it and be good to try and do something that, it's slightly long lasting, but but you know obviously there's loads of other stories that it could have been that, that other stories. So why this this in particular? I'm not sure. I think you know, it varies. Each film you've got use is a different starting point. Really, um, I get that. I reckon it's. I didn't mean to ask you a lazy question, but like the idea of like sort of giving a voice to the voiceless when you do. You know when we talk in particular about your film about Sarajevo and you work there around with Syrian refugees and the Afghan refugees also seems like something that you're interested in. And also when I work with you, it seems like that you're driven about that in a very sort of God, I don't know, undemonstrative way. It seems you seem to be sort of pretty passionate about being useful. Is the word you used? A minute ago. And um, I wonder then, Michael, if um, you have this, you know, if you have this idea of utility and you clearly see a deficit in the way that narratives unfold. And you have just now mentioned the idea that media moves on, whether you question the ethos of news reporting, in, you know, say, with regard to Ukraine. And like this sort of trend to have sort of fashionable causes and fashionable conflicts and tragedies. Well, what do you, how do you feel about that? Um, look, I think it, look, you, in a way, one thing is you imagine news reporting in the past, but you don't really know what it was what it's like. So what I feel like watching the coverage of Ukraine and, and it's, you know, the coverage of the war in Syria, which, which is more time kind of like more deeply sort of involved in kind of thinking about. But is is that the coverage? You know, it's very powerful. So in the case of Ukraine, you know, if there's an aggressor bombing families, they show the families and the, ch and the children. That makes you very powerfully identify with it. Um, and it, it, and I think that you know that is in many ways it's a good thing. The media is doing a good job of making you think about what it's like to be uh, 
a, a Ukrainian family to be a Ukrainian refugee. I think that's good. I think I think so. There's nothing wrong. I think with with that reporting or reporting in general. But that if you say think well, you know, Boris, we saw Boris Johnson go off when when it was like let's try and find a way of not having oil from Russia. Go off to Saudi Arabia and talk to the the, the guys in Saudi Arabia. Think, well, they're bombing Yemen, but maybe we just don't. You know, why is it we don't feel as strongly about Saudi Arabia? I mean, Yemen, and it's probably that we don't see as many Yemeni families in our TV. The media doesn't report it very, very, as much. So it, I guess it's, you know, that thing of you care about people that you see. So if your TV is only show, is showing you one, you know, families in one particular place, you care about those families. If you don't see families in another particular place, you don't care about them so much. It's just, and it's done on a sort of human interest basis, which is probably just what we should all have a human interest in people and their lives and what's going on. But it, it, it's done in a very, you know, erratic pattern, or not erratic, that's probably wrong, but a very conscious pattern, probably. But nevertheless, it's, you, we see some families in, in some conflicts in a lot of detail. We see we don't see other families on the other side of the conflict or other, or other conflicts. And so, you know, it, it, I suppose, I'm, you know, in the case of Gaza, it's a little bit like, well, maybe we don't, you know, I suppose as individually, more like, okay, well, perhaps this conflict isn't covered as much or as well so that's more interesting to, to look at the families here you know um, but there's nothing I don't think that means there's anything wrong with the coverage of Ukraine it just it's just it's just sort of it's just a sort of it, it just a very, it sort of distorts people's response to other situations perhaps that you don't have a similar coverage I think it does distort people's response I also think it creates this is my, my view obviously it creates a kind of deracinated and disassociative relationship with reality where you can, like last year there was a moment where everyone really, really cared about Palestine and because of the complexity of reporting on this subject and my assumption that there are particular interests at play that are difficult to challenge, it's it was, it was you know, it was sort of peculiar to see for a moment that it become the cause of the day before being subsumed back into the kind of gently nihilistic pattern of our, you know, disassociative life. Oh, well, that's, I'm not thinking about that anymore. And it doesn't seem to be arbitrary, does it? The stories that are told and the stories that are not told and the fact that, yeah, but we can see, you know, that we, like, you know, I feel that to some degree, the way that the media behaves creates the conditions for Donald Trump. I'm like, you know, like I would imagine that you and I sort of 10 years ago would have been, broadly speaking, we would have had the same sort of political outlook, socially liberal, left-leaning, progressive. And I, like, I've not let go of any of those views. I still believe you know, with regard to identity politics and racial equality. But here's something I've noticed, that people don't like talking about economic inequality. There's a, It seems to be a vested interest in creating division and alienating and discluding from the conversation about the sort of um, evolution and management of culture, certain, let's call them native voices, an inability to understand what the rise of nationalism and anti-globalism might be at heart. And I feel that this is not disconnected from this um, kind of, I don't know, trendy news and fashionable news. It's evident that something awful, like the, the, the war in Ukraine is awful and death anywhere is awful, you know, but, but, but clearly there is no um, uh, universal metric for evaluating these tragedies. So we're kind of left with a question. Now, because like the film that you and I made 15 years ago was a documentary about, you know... Was it 15 years ago? Oh, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm not very good it was, with time. It was in 2015. 
Oh, so there was that it was seven to, years. It was supposed to come out for the election, but I think we were a little bit late. <laughs> I don't know what was causing it to be late. What was delaying that process? What slowed down production <laughs> to such a degree that we missed the release date? For God's sake! Like what I feel like now is like that when like things in a way seemed simpler then, and like that. You know, I actually, you know, I'll tell you about right, Michael. I regret like coming out and saying I'll vote for Ed Miliband because I think like you know Ed Miliband. It's not criticism of him as a person, but I think well, once again you've got a Labour Party that's, you know, Tory light, that's not going to do anything, that's not going to connect to ordinary working people, that's not going to meaningfully stand up for the National Health Service or the BBC. It's not going to... They're like they're institutional politicians with institutional interests and it's not going to make any difference. And me, like, you know, I don't. I would happily say again, there is no point in voting. I would well, like to although, say there although is. Although after, after that... After that uh... After we made that documentary and you said you vote for uh, Ed Miliband, I can't remember. Did, did you actually say that? I can't remember. You actually said that. I did sort of say yeah. it, although I didn't all get around thing, to it because I things, wasn't registered. All, all the things you were arguing for in that documentary, but then we had a Labour Party for four years that actually had a lot of those passes themselves. It's just Labour Party is changing it. But from from and on, shall we take on. the credit for that? Me should, most think, of it because I, I was work, front of I camera. I think your campaigning work paid off, Russell. And now what happened to Jeremy Corbyn? Now, let's see how that panned out. And what it was it in particular <laughs> that, that brought him down? Um, like, yeah, so it's a, like it's an interesting, evolving political space. So uh, where do you do you like a lot of people feel politically like I've spoke to a lot of American friends who use the phrase like, you know, political homelessness. Do you how do you feel as a person that I know has sort of actively been involved in supporting the Labour Party in the past? How do you feel about the increasing homogenization of? centrist politics and the I don't know I've used the phrase already gentle nihilism of that space uh yeah I mean look it, it, I think uh it it is difficult when you look around the political landscape and it's and, and obviously like there was a you know if you think sort of back to say 2017 it felt like you know you could engage people with politics who perhaps weren't that engaged before you know a lot of young people obviously joined the Labour Party the Labour Party put on Three or four hundred thousand members, or whatever. It felt like there would be a, you know, there was a chance that you could have a, a, a party that, you know, that that appealed in, in so and stay outside the sort of, you know, the sort of, the sort of, sort of the, the, the middle road of, of Tory and Labour Party passes. And you're, you know, but I, I'm not, I'm not sure what happened or what went wrong with Jeremy Corbyn and Labour Party was down to it being too, you know, I'm not sure there was something essential about that that meant it couldn't work. You know, I'm not sure it's just because mm. they had went moose slightly to the left, they all, all, um, it all went to pot. I think there was lots of very particular things that went wrong with, 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 uh, with Corbyn, Corbyn and, 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 you know, in the end, I think they, they got themselves in a complete mess. But I, I think, I don't think that should make you feel like there's no possibility of a more, a slightly more radical mainstream party that can, that actually can be in power and have more radical ideas, you know, and, it, it, you know, it's like I, I think uh, I think if you, if you if you go back to 2017, it felt like there's some, a certain amount of optimism about what you could achieve within democratic Westminster politics. So, all right. And so, do you think that you so you're saying that you think that the Labour Party could be kind of captured again <laughs> by? Uh, momentum style radicalism, or would you? I don't think it's you... that country. That is, I think that is the Labour Party. That is like, you know, it's like, it's like that hundreds of thousands of members. It's really been captured again by a right wing rump, uh, a Westminster, <laughs> and, the, and the mass membership sort of gradually walking away because they're they're frustrated by it. But I don't see how it's. I don't see when you get to about hundreds of thousands of people that that's capturing a, a party. That is the party. Hmm. 
Mm, okay, thanks. Do you? What do you think about um, um, the potential for new and emergent populist movements that focus on creating? Um, I don't. I don't know what I want to say. Pacts and truces across cultural divides in order to generate a more meaningful democratic space, devolution, con community control where possible, embracing the kind of individualism that's both in the identity politics movement and is inherent in libertarianism, as well as some of the principles of anarcho-syndicalism, i.e. devolution of power wherever possible. What do, you, what do you think about the possibility of a new populist movement that's kind of not... Uh, of of the right or alt right? Uh, are you leading it? I will be doing a lot of the talking, but I don't want to be in charge of the decisions when it comes to people deciding who to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I look I look forward to following uh, following that one. You can make the documentary if you want to. I mean, like um, I talked to Yanis Varoufakis a couple of times because I suppose. Um, uh, I suppose like in in Podemos in Spain and um, Syriza in Greece was a sort of a moment where it where in response to the financial crisis. That, yeah, that, that's partly what our film was about, wasn't it? Yeah. Like that. Um, I remember that now. <laughs> Way back in 20, uh, 2002, there we were, just a couple of plucky upstarts. <laughs> um, like uh, like uh, that, um, you know, that it need that populism needn't be and in fact actually cannot be right wing at heart if it's true to its core idea of creating a, a genuine democratic access of ordinary people to the decisions that affect their lives. I feel that this is, I feel that it is necessary. And, and I like what you said there about the Labour Party weren't captured, but I don't know, occupied or just temporarily defibrillated into meaningful action. But I, I, I've just, myself, I've become so disillusioned, Michael, that I can't sometimes can't envisage it happening within one of the existing parties. But like I, you know, so I guess, yeah, this is where I'm going with this question. Are you serious about this stuff? You know, like, because like sooner or later, this would lead to like meaningful political action, like, like rather, or, or are we, you and I, I include us both in this, really just commentary? Are we just, you know, chattering class and intelligentsia saying, oh, it's bad that this is happening, but we're never actually to sort of well, get I boots on the ground? I, I don't think that's a fair distinction because, like, one one of the things you said just a few minutes ago was like how the media kind of shape like what happens, you know, and obviously you know, the media is responding to you know sort of power within society, whether it's the government or or you know or financial power, but nevertheless. You know, to go back to the kind of conversation about Ukraine, like the media shapes how we understand that war and what we think about it, the same with the war in Syria. You know, so I think you, if you look at individual, like without avoiding the sort of big theories, we look at individual kind of areas where things could change. You, we spent, I spent quite a lot of time with asylum seekers in Britain for various different reasons over, over the last few years. And it's like when you when you see like the way in which the media shaped the the narrative of like we you know Ukrainian refugees are good we want to welcome them we want to open our arms to them we want to provide them with homes, I think rather than feeling cynically like well what about the other other refugees you you should, you should embrace that but think that okay well let's use that to try and then make sure other asylum seekers are, are you know are 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 welcomed in the same way you know it's like it is absolutely ludicrous that people who have been here often for years as asylum seekers aren't allowed to work it's just you know there's absolutely no reason for that it's just a sort of punitive element of the hostile environment and so it's it, i think you know it's it, media is important what you do is important and and but you it's, you know it's trying to find areas where you can actually change something in the real world as well and it's like it should be it'd be great to think that 
the way in which the, the narrative around Ukrainian refugees has been shaped could be expanded to to all people trying to get here, whether they're fleeing, you know, fleeing war in Ukraine, war in Yemen, or, or war in, the consequences of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, or, or whatever. And what's bizarre at the moment is at the same time, we've got like homes for refugees from one conflict, we've got a sort of a home office you know, threatening to sort of push boats back with refugees in uh, you know, another way, and you know, trying to you know, send refugees to, to Rwanda. I mean, that that is a crazy contradiction. It's, you know, media, should be, you know, is one one job of people in the chattering classes should be to try and point that out and actually try and change, change the room for the better. Whilst it is important to highlight the stories of the vulnerable and dispossessed and give voice to the voiceless, and I believe that there's a, there is a great latent power, whether it's you know the, some of the voices that you've highlighted over the career, your career, or you know what we were talking about just then, like asylum seekers, refugees. I, I, until we are, all right, I'll tell you it directly because it's you. Sometimes I used to watch like Tommy Robinson like stuff, right? Like I'd see like football hooligan type or football fans, football supporter type people out, and I think, look at the energy of this. Look at the energy. What like that? That's got to go somewhere. It's got. That is what you need. You need that energy. Now, like now, of course, what we know is that that community, and I'm obviously making sweeping generalizations here. Generally speaking, wouldn't be supportive of like sort of uh, an act. Muslim community and or of a sort of a certainly not of a professional metropolitan sort of pro-refugee type. In fact, they would see the immigrant crisis as a, one of the biggest threats they face in daily life in Luton or Greys or Blackburn or wherever. And I feel like if we are not able to engage, re-engage that community to once again make that community feel like their home is not ethno-nationalism, but a kind of embrace of traditional values in addition to an openness to aspects of progressivism. If we can't bring that conversation about, if we can't form those alliances, there will be no meaningful change because as well as providing voice to the voiceless, there has to be a kind of focus on where real power is. Where real, who, why is it that Jeremy Corbyn failed? And I know that there are very particular reasons for that, but it's very difficult for us to envisage a situation where someone comes into power that would meaningfully able be meaningfully be able to challenge globalist corporate financial interests that would close the kind of loopholes we talk, talked about in Emperor's New Clothes. We'll plug that film as well. As we'll do a whole Michael Winterbottom retrospective. We'll do a bloody festival. 24-hour party people over 24 hours. <laughs> Let's celebrate Michael Winterbottom and everything he's achieved. He's not had enough awards, this guy. Um, yeah, so like, and, and, and to, like, how direct are you willing to be in your storytelling? How close to the edge are you willing to go? And what challenges are there when, if you start talking about the relationships between the state and corporate power, when you start talking about the legitimacy of uh, conspiracy, conspiratorial sounding stories uh, like let me say like you know so like you know if you start looking at the WEF the WHO if you start looking at legislation to prohibit national democracies from having their own policies around certain subjects I don't want to draw you into anything that's uh, 
tin foil hat. I'm not interested in that stuff. I'm only interested in things where there's where like you know the, the with the stuff I do on YouTube. We only use we we take it out of like the Guardian, New York Times, British Medical Journal. We don't go near anything else for, for legal reasons and because I can't be bothered, you know, with it. But what I feel like is like if we don't if you don't make these stories accessible to ordinary people, if you don't include people in this conversation, you're not nothing's going to change nothing's going to change so I guess my question I'm, I know it's taking me a while is like how do we how do we include all communities in this particularly those that are sort of feel really maligned by contemporary media talking about sort of um, indigenous folks of uh, all, all colours and religions and also how do we start to focus on and target what the problem actually is like this, these are the powerful interests that need to be addressed. These are the changes that need to be made. This is what a new populism would look like. You know, how, what what are your views on telling those kind of stories and how to do them? Well, but in terms of like you know what you're doing, like that's what you've been doing, isn't it? Like in terms of like whether you can or not, it's like you've been for years. You've been you know on all the various different platforms, like trying to look at those issues and talk about them. But does it seem to you like that that like that doesn't you know? Do you feel like that's what that works or not? I mean, it's like, do, does it, does it, it, it is possible to have a voice. You have a voice. You're bringing, uh, 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 bringing those issues to, you know, making people think about those issues and engaging with people who probably aren't necessarily naturally that interested in those issues or that sympathetic to kind of your take on them, but you're still, you can still engage with them. Yeah, I think I'm getting better at it. And I think I'm starting to have some, <clears throat> some pretty good ideas about how to whip up a right little populist <laughs> storm. <laughs> I've got some real, I've got some real humdingers. But Michael. Based in Grays, your power based in Grays. Those guys, we've got to get them riled up. I feel like a fan ownership of football clubs. You see how like with the Chelsea and Abramovich, right? Roman Abramovich can't own Chelsea no more. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Right, Liverpool, West Ham, Man United, Man City. We've taken them all back. We're giving them to the communities. You own your football clubs. You run your football clubs. You democratically own them. That's one of our policies. It's in the manifesto. We're going to pay the police properly. We're going to pay, pay the military properly. Okay, guys? You can unionise. You're going to get pensions. We're going to be looking after you. Just keep our guns in our pockets. Teachers, nurses. Doctors, firemen, service professions, you built this country, you run this country, this is your country. If you don't want immigration in your community, then you can vote against it. Immigration will be in the communities that vote for it particularly, and they will be granted budgets from a central resource so that they can handle the immigration influx that they are willing to take and that they voted for in the communities that want to take them. So if you want immigration, you can have it in your community. If you don't want to have it, don't have it in your community. I'm sick of moral. I'm sick of judging people. If you're anti-immigration, don't have immigration. If you're pro-immigration, have immigration. Devolve power wherever possible. More devolution. I'm not asking you to vote for me, Michael. I'm asking you to vote for you. Vote for you. There is no me. I am you. I am your voice. <laughs> that kind of thing, Michael. That's the sort of place to start. You're, ch you're channeling it very well, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> It's exhausting, Michael. It's exhausting. So, what do you think? Is there a chance? What can we do? Well, I think, Start I think with mayoralty. I think anger of people, you know, in places like Blackburn and Greys, is, is justified, isn't it? It's like so. It's like it's you know, in a way, the whole Tory thing of like the left behind towns. It's true. Like geographical inequality is, is huge. You know, and, and you know, the inequality of like towns compared to the metropolitan areas is, is huge. So. People have a right, you know, for, for, to, to feel angry and a right to feel left out, a right to feel left behind, all that sort of stuff. And like you say, it's how to channel it in a positive direction, in the direction you want it to go. And, and you know, you're, you're good at that. 
But I think, I think fundamentally, it's, I think you said this early on, it's like most of that, you know, most of the stuff between, you know, people who have power and, and a good life and people who don't is down to economic inequality. And that can, that plays out across gender or across across race or across geography or whatever. But fundamentally, it comes down to if you have lots of money, in our society, you have lots of money, you have power and independence. If you don't have any money, you don't. And that, that kind of is the underlying kind of inequality, I think. There's a thread of activism that's run through your whole career. I spoke to Ta- Peter Tatchell once, the famous Australian gay act, uh, gay rights activist. He said, like, when you're talking about civil rights, he said, in the end, they will yield. Whether you're talking about, like, uh, the right for gay folk to get married or whatever, or even racial, uh, you know, equality, even though, of course, I recognise that's hardly a story that can be said to be concluded. But he said, as soon as you go near money and power, you, the, the, it's a different story. That's when, like, you will experience real resistance. And that just sort of makes me wonder about the inflections of the recent political debate. And, and, and I agree with what you've said there. In the end, economic power is, of course, the power that matters, the power that influences outcomes. And, yeah, I, I, what's, what films are you going to make now, then? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, uh, I, well, we're about, especially about to make a film set in, um, set in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv in the 1930s. So it's set, but in Tel Aviv in those days was in Palestine. It's when it was still the British mandate. So it's uh, it's about two British police officers in the Palestine police force chasing a guy called Abraham Stern, who believed that violence was the way to create Israel. So it's the two of them. It's sort of it's a sort of cat and mouse thriller. Where, are, are, who's going to get who first? Okay. Based on, based on, based on a true story. You move effortlessly between the scripted uh, and documentary. With a lot effort, of effort. With a lot of effort. effort. <laughs> How come you work with Coogan so much? I don't know. It just became a bad habit, but I, I think I've I think I've kicked that habit now. <laughs> I mean, I love a lot of your Coogan films. You've done that one with him, the sort of not top shop one, pretty recently. All of the trip stuff, I think, is amazing. Twenty four hour party people, incredible. Like okay, it's yeah, it's a sort of. What's it like then? Is it is it? No, it's easy, great. It's great. It's great. And, you know, we are we are thinking about other things to do. But the, the we sort of like did one trip and then sort of just because it was a lot of fun. So did three more. So like that finished that now. So just yeah, I think yeah, I hope to get a chance to work with him on something else. But but that is we finished that. But he's like very easy to work with. You know, he's he's like he's like you. It's very easy to work with. Very funny. So, <laughs> well, like, if you say he's like you, then I assume that you don't mean he's easy to work with. <laughs> um, like those the, those things. How do you um, manage script versus spontaneity and stuff? Well, we see on, on the you, if, uh, with the stuff that we see on the trip uh, is like it's, it's all impressive. It's like a thirty-page outline. And so, like we so said, like each scene is like this is what you're going to talk about this scene, but it's it, you know. The, but then Steve and Rob just like have a go, and we just do it. You know, we just do it, have a, get a few goes at it, and gradually sort of work out what what's working, what's not. So that is, you know, that from my point of view, that's the like really, really. It was a really enjoyable thing to do and an easy thing to do because it's just you know it. I get I get the fun of the research beforehand, and then just watching Steve and Rob mess around over lunch really pretty easy. Yeah. Then you could do those uh, the B roll of someone making a dinner, and then you call it work. <laughs> um, what What about um? Hey, what about? Remember, you was going to make a film of my autobiography. I know. Well, what happened to that? What happened to that? I think you got old, too old to play yourself as a fourteen year old, wasn't that? <laughs> I can still do it. I can have a shave. I can still get into the dress. 
I, I think that's a great autobiography, by the way. I really enjoyed that book. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a frustration that we never got to make the film. Perhaps it will ultimately be posthumous, Michael. Perhaps it will be the next was, generation. I think to be honest, we started that so long ago that it, then when we, after we started talking about it, you then went off to Hollywood. It was before your Hollywood phase and you just, you became too famous, really, basically. That was the problem. And then not famous enough. <laughs> it's been, an, it's been an, an interesting cycle of in relation to fame, really, the, the, yeah. the whole process. Yeah, well, my... Michael, unless you've got anything else to add, and I hope you do, but like I can see you're a person that doesn't really like doing things like this, but there have been some really good moments where I thought, oh, look, he's completely at ease with himself now. But why don't you don't like doing this sort of stuff? Um, no, that's true. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm very happy to talk to you, but in general, I'm not a big fan of uh, this sort of thing. Why? Um, it's just like, just I don't, I'm not interested in talking about work, really. Yeah, that's normally a good sign, actually. Like, a, sort of a lot of people I know that are brilliant, like, they just go, look, I've made the thing. I mean the thing. That's what I mean, the thing. Go and watch the thing, and then you'll know what I mean. Like, but, like, Morrissey, can't get him to do it. David Lynch, can't get him to do it. You, can't get you to do it. But, like, you, but sometimes because of the subject matter and the sort of evident intention, like, you know, it's kind... And also just the fact that you're working in this industry. It's like, you... you I suppose the fact that you've been doing it, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, however long it's been, means that you have become, what, inured or you can manage the kind of contradictions and challenges of, like, working within systems that re involve raising finance and stuff? Have you got partners in that world that make it easy or what? Yeah, yeah, we have a, we, we just have a tiny company which just really exists so that we can make the stuff we want to make. So usually, we, you know, we have an idea for a film and then we, we try and make it. So... You know, some things happen quickly. Like in the case of the, you know, Elaine Days in May, that's something that we just did ourselves. It was, you know, we didn't have to ask anyone to do that. Uh, yeah, and obviously we, do, you know, um, but then, you know, other things like the one we're about to do uh, set in Tel Aviv, we, we started work on that like 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, it's, uh, so some, you know, we had like three, I think it's probably been three times where we've almost made it. But it's, you know, it's quite complicated because about, you know, British channel chase, chase sort of, uh, Sort of, to, to sort of the people trying to build Israel. So it's quite a complicated story in, in you know, in some ways politically. Um, so it, in it, and we sort of almost made it, but never quite, quite got it made. But we're finally making it now in um, in Italy in, this, in in October. So, so it, you it just, varies, you know, so it's, it's not too late for your autobiography. Sometimes no, you know, even even things that go away a long time, they come back finally, and you get a chance to make them. Yeah, I I would would I'd like to like I'd have gotten. Um, what do I want to say? I find like the last time I made a film, it was with um, Branner. I done Death on the Nile, and I felt like, and it was like a big movie stars in it and stuff. I found it not easy, Michael. And I sometimes feel like like all of us that work in this field have to wrangle our skill set or talent, whatever you want to call it, into a pre-existing model that ultimately becomes determined by economic conditions. And all the while that I was in the evident ascendancy from like being a star on telly over here to being a film star in America over there to that like to sort of becoming sort of beleaguered and bewildered by that and like you know sort of like it sort of came to a natural end Arthur didn't do well so it was like all oh, right so it's not going to be like a limitless trajectory into sort of abundant millions but even sort of at the you know when it was still ascendant I felt such a sense of personal alienation and dissatisfaction and disconnection from it 
you know, even like thinking about it now, having this conversation, there's another version where I could have gone, no, I'll just stay here and like maybe I'll make this film with Michael Winterbottom about my autobiography. But I was so sort of like fervent and febrile with ambition and intensity. If you have that kind of intensity and energy in you, like the system knows how to direct it and how to latch onto it and how to vampire it and how to direct it. And like coming from the background I come from, you know, it's really easy to fall into tropes of rags to riches and personal success and this is me and like, you know, I've got a good dose of like Thatcher 80s style, yes, like in me anyway. Um, now, but like it was always there. It was always there because of the conditions of my childhood. It's always there because of being a junkie. It's just never gone away. The idea that there's got to be something useful, to use your word, useful, worthwhile, this sort of antithesis of the ongoing sort of self-infatuation and ego. Like, you know, I have to manage, as I'm sure you do in your own way, like those kind of forces of this is, you know, this is what I want to do because of, I don't know why, just something in me drives me and I've been fed by the, you know, I'm a product of my time and my culture and these systems. But then there's something else. There's something else that's always been there. Like it's always been there, something that feels sort of quite, um, what do I want to say, it's authentic, it's sort of real. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to manage that. It seems like you've managed that rather well, Michael. That it's, never different, gone. it's a different situation, completely different situation. I was, you're, you're, you know, you're a public figure. But so you don't want to do films anymore? I don't like... I, well, no, I don't have a want to do them. I'm not saying that I would never do them, but it's not like I don't, I'm not sitting on a desire to do them. What I feel like I want to do is carry on doing what we're doing right now, like making like those videos and telling sort of like, you know, telling simple stories and making them accessible to people and seeing where that goes. But for me, uh, like, but for me, I feel that it has to become, um, it has to co-align and coalesce with purpose and activism i felt very happy around the time of that new era estate like when it because what i like you know and looking back at it like you know that was for people that don't know there was a these women were campaigning for their estate not to be taken over by building developers and then i amplified it just through my my social media channels and they won and there was a weird march to downing street and it was on the news and another one of those mad bloody things anyway like i felt like oh what it is is they're they're doing that already and all I have to do is amplify it and the, that makes sense and then even the stuff with the trues uh, the mistake I made because I've always got that mistake in me is that for a minute I was drawing attention to something that everybody felt and then because I got the attention because I was the one saying it I was like this is about me and how great I am <laughs> right I'll take it from here <laughs> you know like you know but like. If I can just avoid that mistake, I feel that I can do something interesting. I don't know quite how yet because I'm sort of trying to take it slow and I'm trying to watch for that error. And also there are other considerations because I do genuinely believe that if you start to make an impact in particular places, you know, there are, we do not live in an entirely benign world. And is the stand-up connected to that as well? Or do you see that as a separate area? Is, do you, is that, you, do you, is, because well, I'm coming to your show, but I haven't seen it, but is that, does that draw on, on the yeah. material? The stand-up is, in a sense, the purest expression of it because I'm directly in the room and I get an opportunity to properly explore it. I wish, why don't you direct that? Will you direct that? Will you direct, I've got to do a stand, I've got to do the stand-up special. Like, you know, like, you know, so with that, yeah, you're coming, aren't you? So when you, maybe when you see that, if you want to, perhaps you'll help me with it. So like, I like, um, yeah, with that, you know, I do, I tell the, I tell the first half is like pretty light and some, but, but also introducing the themes of mental health and addiction and some of the things we experienced during the pandemic and it's, there's a lot of profanity and vulgarity. Then there's an interval and you should see me jumping in there with that audience, a lot of cuddling, a lot of messianic stuff goes on in that interval. <laughs> 
Then like, a political, the... like a political rally. You bet, mate. I tell you, if people see that stuff, like, uh, yeah, that, that red wall will be up in a in a shot. <laughs> like, uh, when they see old Russ pressing the flesh and hugging the babies. And then the second half, I sort of tell the story of the pandemic from a very sort of, like, you know, using news stories. And it sort of goes starts quite light and frivolous. But by the time it gets to sort of, like, Cummings, Hancock and the parties, it escalates. And I just did it in Scotland. And when you do it there and you've got the sort of the resource of their natural and antipathy and anti-establishment feeling, like, it went got intense Michael it got really like you know because they're like they're already up out of their chairs like in Glasgow and Edinburgh and um, yeah so like uh, that's sort of where it goes and then I do a, I do meditation and breath work after that and all the while saying to people I know like I know I'm mental I don't think I'm better than you I'm not, I'm not trying to set myself up honestly I know this is insane so like yeah I'm trying to I'm trying to not go crazy I remember when we did the uh, episode closed you were talking to people in Grace and it's like it's like it kind of it felt like you know you could put ideas that were sort of you know not ideas they would want to agree with and not and ideas that were radical but you could still put them in a way that they could engage with it you know and and it just feels like that labor doesn't have that ability you know but people on the left generally or you know the chattering classes as you call them is that finding what find it hard to frame ideas that you know that in a way that people will engage with a place like blackburn or grays or, or people you know or people who are not necessarily sympathetic to them but put them in a way that they can you know think about them and, and actually be persuaded by them there's sort of it's the sort of the language that's used is a sort of barrier i think sometimes the communication is certainly yeah it's, it's certainly a problem but um, my concern is that um, uh, that there is a deeper issue and that is a fundamental misanthropy at the core of parliamentary politics and the idea that there is a requirement for a centralized sovereign force and that the state has to take a role of governance and control that i believe is beyond the what the role of government ought to be i'm not like a small government libertarian hey let's go crazy and all own guns i'm, I'm what i believe is that people have to be entrusted to wherever possible run their own community and I was interested in those ideas, you know, where in those in regions in Brazil where they started to just give the budgets to the community and then by assembly people would vote for whether they wanted to fund hospitals, schools or what they wanted to give to the police and what they wanted to do to other air, municipal areas. And I feel like that you have to allow people to make their own mistakes and that tribal and cultural tensions might be alleviated if people felt like, well, you know, because how are we ever going to marry the idea that some people want to raise kids as, you know, non-binary and like gender fluid and elsewhere people want very orthodox, traditional, even Muslim, or Jewish or Christian upbringing. Who's wrong? Who's wrong? Who's got to give up their rights there? You know, you have to take that off the table. You have to say, if they want to do that, let them. If they want to do that, let them. Leave people alone. Like, I think, like, until you are able to, to some degree, except, like, I would say as well with political discourse, that we have to get to a point where, like, I'd like this relationship. This is what we believe is right. This is what we believe you should do. This is what we believe is going to be best for you and your community. But you decide. You decide. We don't know everything. I don't know what it's like to be you. I don't know what you've been through. I don't like the kind of paternal, or to use a word of the day, patriarchal, beyond gender, the authoritative stance taken, the presumptuous, the presumptiveness. And when I talked to Curtis, Adam Curtis, about this stuff, he like he said, like he thinks that like they, the professional classes, you know, whether left inverted commas or right, 
don't like working class people and have never liked them. They don't like them. So they're not interested in helping. Like, you know, oh, that's why there's all the snarling, contemptuous critiques of people having flags outside their houses or white vans or all that kind of stuff. They don't like them. Well, I do like those people. I like them. I didn't like them when I had to live with them. <laughs> I like them now. You know, and I feel that until that, that issue is... Uh, a, 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 a addressed until the respect is given. I don't think it's right. Like the whole Brexit thing, Michael, like, the, you know, like a minute, like, the, you know, this flag don't mean nothing anymore. Well, it meant something four generations ago when you wanted people to give up their sons and, you know, to a lesser extent, daughters to die for that flag. Like, it, like what is it? It don't mean anything now. Like, and I, I think there's been a sort of a chronic disrespect in the way that people have been treated and like until that is and I think that disrespect can be levied and mobilised into a very very powerful movement but I don't know I'm not naive about it I, I don't know I just you know but it interests me sounds good sounds good <laughs> so forcing everyone to stand and salute the flag uh, if we could just do that and I've also got some ideas for uniforms that are pretty good <laughs> as well they're pretty they're very they're slick they're sleek Hugo Boss is involved need I say more um, Michael thanks for letting me come on your podcast and interviewing me <laughs> there for the last 15 minutes at least and thank you for enduring me both in this podcast and during the documentary and in um, various forms always a pleasure always a pleasure thanks very much Russell thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Michael Winterbond please let me know what you thought of it and share your thoughts on what we talk about if you're on Instagram tag me at Russell Brown or tweet me at Rusty Rockets using the hashtag under the skin. If you like this conversation, have a little listen to Thomas Frank and learn a bit more about populism. Yeah, that'll get you going. That'll get your gander up because that's why I talk about new emergent political movements. And have a listen to Jimmy Dore, a brilliant lefty, but one of the old school lefties where it, you know, it feels like it's real and it matters. Two great episodes. If you want to spend some more time with me, go and listen to Above the Noise now. We'll do some meditation. And remember, look at my YouTube channel, sign up to the mailing list. Just dedicate your whole life to me. Is that too much to ask? Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.